I'm not sure how many of you have seen the church marquees this past week and noticed the sermon title, but uh, I'm starting with a very serious controversy that I want to share with you all. It involves Skittles. I don't know if you guys have tried Skittles before, if they're on your candy palette or not, but um, they were never really one of my favorites. But about a month ago, I found out something very troubling about Skittles. Even though on the packaging they advertise that the green ones taste like green apple and the red ones taste like strawberry, the purple ones taste like grape, yellow is lemon and orange like orange, it's all a lie. See, the people that make Skittles know that it's much cheaper to make all the Skittles taste the same because they have the same ingredients in every single Skittle. They just know that we, as consumers, are naive enough to think that if they put different colors on them, they'll taste like the colors. And it's a myth. I encourage you to do a self-test later on. I even bought the share size, so after the service, if you'd like to conduct a survey, blind tasting on the Skittles, we can prove that it's a hoax that they're putting on us. Well, I know we're just finishing Christmas, and getting ready for the new year, and you're wondering, why is he talking about Skittles? But uh, I want to read the words from a hymn that we've all sung in the last week. And uh, I'm sure you'll recognize some of it, if not most of it. It says, O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It's the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pinning, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary soul rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees, hear the angel voices. O night divine, O night when Christ was born. O night, O holy night, O night divine. So that's the first verse. And there is a middle verse and a third verse, but I just want to call us all out a little bit. Because up here, where we, we can see everyone on Christmas and during Advent, and we're singing these Christmas carols. Everybody belts the first verse out, right? Because we know those, and we can remember the words. And then the second verse comes, and it's a little sketchy, but at least we remember a phrase or two, or a word or something. And then we get to the third verse, and it begins, and every once in a while, I just start singing the first verse again, because that's the only thing I know half the time. But I want to point out the third verse to O Holy Night. Truly he has taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother. And in his name all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy in grateful chorus we raise. Let all within us praise his holy name. Fall on your knees. O hear the angel voices. O night divine. O night when Christ was born. O night, holy night. O night divine. So, at least in this Christmas carol, loving one another is part of the reason that we celebrate Christmas. And I want to read our two passages this morning. The first one is from Matthew chapter 22. I invite you to read along in your bulletin. And the occasion of this first passage, Jesus is just concluding a really in-depth conversation with some of the most intellectual and expert Jewish leaders on the law. And so this is Jesus' response to a question that they had for him. And the question was, what is the greatest of all the commandments? 
And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. For all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And then the second scripture lesson from John 17, the occasion of this one, is very close to the end of Christ's life. And he actually is praying to his heavenly Father on behalf of his disciples and all the people that he knows and that are following him, and even for those that don't believe in him. And he's also including us in this prayer. So this is Christ's prayer for us. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, that they may be in us so the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me even as I have loved you. So in our scripture lessons and the hymn that we looked at, part of the reason Jesus came at Christmas, obviously, was for salvation and to restore the relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father that was broken through sin. But it's also to remind us and to give us the commandment to treat others the way we want to be treated and to love one another unconditionally, to love people the way Jesus loves them. And the way that happens is for us to see them in the same way that Jesus sees them. Kind of like the Skittles. We're lured into thinking we like or dislike different flavors of Skittles by the power of getting us to think that the colors match the flavors, when in really they don't. The challenge for us, as Jesus gives us these commandments to love one another and to love others like we love ourselves, is challenging for us. Because we look at others through our perspective and not his. Scripture's full of uh, a lot of great teachings. I think we can all agree on that. Things to live by. The world will be better if. God's desire for us. The problem is he leaves the implementation of these teachings up to us. And we fail to put it into practice mainly because we keep those goggles on of our perception of things and what we believe to be true instead of what he says is true about other people. The idea that if we loved everyone and treated each other in the way we wanted to be treated, the world would be such a better place. John Lennon even imagined that. The relationship of total love and respect and oneness that Jesus shared with his heavenly Father is what he wanted for all of us. And coming at the very first Christmas, part of his reason and his life's work was to remind us of that. Total unity. Loving one another the way we want to be loved and without condition. You know, as I get older and hopefully a little wiser, I really found a couple things to be true about God's Word and how we relate to it and the instructions that we get from it. One is that it's a whole lot easier to agree with what Jesus says than to do what Jesus says. Because I think we pretty much all, without much struggle or argument, agree with the things that he says. But man, putting them into practice, it's a whole other category. 
The other thing that I noticed, I know in Don's prayer and in the timing of the year with New Year's coming this week, it's the time of year that we try to improve ourselves. We're going to do the redo. We're going to lose weight. We're going to get, we're gonna do this, whatever we're going to do to better ourselves. But I think a challenge that we still struggle with is that is as we do try to improve ourselves, our goal becomes to become a better version of ourselves and not like Jesus. Because again, we have those deceptions that we live with that aren't true. He wants us to love everybody the way he did. Not just the ones that I choose to. And I don't get the opportunity to exclude the ones that I choose not to. Just like the orange and purple Skittles and not the red ones, because I don't like those. Because I'm looking through my lenses and not his. So I'll be honest with you, I try to do this. I try to treat people the way I like to be treated. And I try to love everybody. And there's, most people, it's not really that difficult. Some of them it's really easy. Some people it's a little tougher. And then there's some people, man, I don't know if I'll ever get there. The people that have hurt me, the people that have hurt the ones I love, anybody that would hurt a child. And as I get older, it starts to become more and more difficult to love the people that disagree with me or that believe differently than I do. Then there's a whole special category for discourteous drivers. <laughs> I swear, I try. I, my wife is really talented with her horn. I don't use it properly or well enough. But man, I give instructions as people are driving and telling them what they're doing wrong. The challenge is both the people that I give driving instruction to and those people that are difficult for me to love for some reason or another, when I start to take a little joy and revel in the fact that I'm better or different than they are, and that's why I choose not to love them, is that I start to see myself in them. And I start to make those same stupid driving maneuvers that I hate when people do them to me. It's hard to take a good look at yourself and maybe hold yourself to that same standard that you hold of other people. You know who does it really well, though? You know who loves well? Mr. Rogers. About a month ago, my family and I went to the movie that's out. I think it's called a Wonderful Neighborhood. But I can remember my kids watching Mr. Rogers when they were growing up, and, and the movie was delightful, very hope-giving. Um, and Tom Hanks nails it, by the way. But one of the best parts that stuck out to me in that movie was when Mr. Rogers' wife is describing him to somebody else. And one of the things that she said about him is that he prays for people by name. And then later in the movie, you actually see him get on his knees right next to his bed, and he's praying for people, and he's saying the names out loud, and then he's silent for a while, obviously praying to himself, then he says somebody else's name. But what's interesting is he doesn't just pray for the people that he likes. He prays for the people that he dislikes as well. And when he prays for them, he doesn't pray for them to change. He prays for a change in himself. All children love candy. There's a story of a young boy that was particularly fond of candy. And his weekly routine consisted of trying to save up enough money all week long 
to go to the general store on Saturday and walk that candy aisle with a grin on his face, seeing what piece of candy he was going to buy. He would check his dad's pockets when he got home from work and change and save the pennies and the nickels. And we're going to have a much earlier time period for this illustration because we're talking about pennies and nickels and trying to get enough of them to get one piece of candy. And what he would do is on Saturday mornings, he'd run down to the general store and he'd open the front door. And on the front door of the general store was a bell. So when you opened it, the bell rang and the storekeeper, who was usually behind the counter conducting business and selling his wares and everything, would stop whatever he was doing when he heard the bell and he would look to the door and he would greet whoever came in and tell him how glad that he was that they were in his store. But when the young boy opened the door and the storekeeper would always look over, whenever he saw him, he didn't welcome or say anything else, he just winked at him. And the boy went in and he did his usual routine up and down the candy aisle. And uh, that particular, set, usually the routine that went, he would go pick out his candy and he'd get in line, he'd come up to the counter, he'd put the candy on the counter and then empty his pockets of all the coins that he had. And the storekeeper wanted to take an opportunity to help teach him a little bit too, so he said, now you count them out with me. And he would count all the pennies out and he'd count all the nickels out. And then when he got to the point where he had enough money on the counter to pay for the candy, he would slide that part towards him. And if there was any leftover, he'd slide it towards the little boy and say, you save this for next week. And then he'd give him the piece of candy and the boy would be done with it before he got 10 paces out of the store. Just gobble it up. But this one Saturday, the boy shows up and the same routine goes. He gets a wink when he comes in the front door. He picks out his candy. It comes his time to pay and he puts his candy and his money on the counter. And the storekeeper is counting it out. So we got this penny, we got this, we got this. Here's five more with the nickel and everything. And then the storekeeper stops and kind of sighs. And the boy goes, oh no, what's wrong? The storekeeper says, you're a penny short. And the little boy's head just drops. And he turns to walk out of the store. He's so disappointed. And the storekeeper says, wait, hey, hey, come back, come back. See, this is my store. And I get to make the rules. And as he's talking to the little boy, he's reaching behind him and he gets a rag. And he puts a little bit of vinegar on the rag. And he starts putting the penny in the rag and rubbing it with his fingers. And while he's telling him, the little boy's looking at him like waiting for a magic trick or something to happen. But again, he says, you know what? I love all the people that come in my store. But that's a choice that I have. And I get to make the rules in my store. And one of my rules, and he takes the penny out and it's brand new looking. He says, shiny pennies are worth two cents. And he puts it on the counter and he says, you have just enough. And he scrapes the coins and he gives the boy the candy and the boy's all thrilled and he leaves. But even as an adult, that young boy, whenever he sees a shiny penny, says, shiny pennies are worth two. And it's true in that store because the shopkeeper gets to decide what things are worth. God asks us to love one another the way we want to be loved, we have the ability to place whatever worth we decide to put on individuals. We have different criteria that we use sometimes, but we get to choose how valuable people are. And how we choose people's worth is part of how we choose whether or not to love them the way we want to be loved and to love one another. How do you determine people's worth in your lives? And I need to stop just for a second before I go any further. My fingers are not pointing out. I've got plenty of them pointing back at myself. This is way more for me than it is for you. But how do we put 
worth on people's lives. I wonder if the condition of their lives affects part of it. I don't know about you, when we drive around these days and all the different homeless encampments that are around, but it's just very troubling. What's your thought about individuals when you see them in those conditions? you have pity on them? Do some of you maybe think, you know, if they just tried a little harder, maybe if they got a job and kept it, and they could save enough and get an apartment or something, at least they could clean up, right? How about the color of people's skin? We've got a saying that we put on the cover of our bulletin. And if you haven't read it lately, I just want to remind you what it says. Right underneath Piedmont Community Church. It says, no matter your age, your race, your ethnicity, your status in life, your religious background, your gender, your sexual orientation, you are all welcome here. Because as a church, we want to try to assign worth by what God thinks of people and not what we think. But I wonder if the color of people's skin is still an issue. One of the favorite things that Judy and I do is, quite often on Saturdays, we'll go out to brunch. And we have our favorite restaurant on Lakeshore. And we go and we enjoy being together, catching up, solving our problems of the world. But we like to just linger. And sometimes we're there for hours. And over the weeks and months and the last couple years, we realize that there's a lot of other people that like to do that too, and we end up being there at the same time. So we have a whole friend group at Shakewell Restaurant. And one of those guys' name is Jerry. Jerry is from Baltimore, Maryland, and he joined the Navy as a young man. And his last duty station in the Navy was San Francisco. Fell in love with California and San Francisco, so when he got out of the Navy, he stayed here. Been here for over 35 years now. Jerry loves jazz, goes to the Monterey Jazz Festival every year, loves to talk about jazz. Jerry's black, and Jerry's gay. And it took us a long time before we ever got to those issues in our conversations and spending time with each other. And when it came, it went as quickly as it came. But I remember asking him one time when we were talking about that, all those categories that he fell in, I said, Jerry, when you meet people or you walk into a room, do you feel like they see that you are a black man, or that they judge you because maybe you're gay or not? And he just stopped me and he said, you know what, it is no comparison. I walk into a room and the first thing they see is the color of my skin. To them, I'm a black man. How do we determine people's worth? What about the people that don't agree with us? That's a hard one for me. But man, one of the things that pains me so much in life right now is a divide in our country between the people that agree with each other and the people that don't agree with each other. And I really have a hard time having hope that it's gonna be better. But part of that hope has to be us, deciding that we will still treat people the way we wanna be treated and try to love them the way Jesus does, even if they don't agree with us or represent something different than we do. So up to this point, I've been fairly negative about things. I'm gonna flip the coin, try to lighten the room a little bit. And I want to try to give you a couple examples of people that have chosen to follow Jesus' desire. To put worth on them based on what Jesus believes and not what they see or what they think. One of them is a, is a guy that I know that he, when he goes to thrift shops and used stores and everything, he buys as many old medals as he can find. You know, the kind with a ribbon and a dangly coin, military-looking medals. And he saves as many as he can, and he's got a ton of them. And his goal is when he listens to people, meets people, when he has encounters with people, that he wants to find something that they've accomplished, 
that's changed their life, that they're proud of. And he stops them and he says, I want to recognize right now this victory in your life of what you've accomplished and how hard it was for you and how long it took. And he physically takes a medal out and he pins a medal on them. And he says, you would not believe the way the demeanor of a person changes when they get a medal. Because this guy chooses to celebrate how far people have come instead of the reality of how far they still need to go. It's a very different perspective. I know another guy who just searches very creative ways for act, random acts of kindness with people. And one of them with, was with a neighbor that he has. The woman that lived across the street from him, and she was elderly and she lived alone. Her family was gone, and she found out she had cancer. Now, he had spent time with her over the years, and he would bring meals over, and they would invite her to family functions and things. So they knew each other fairly well. And she, at one point after she realized she had cancer and was getting very sick, she told him that the hardest part for her are the night times, because that's when she's alone and she gets scared. So what he did, he went to Walmart, and he bought the best set of walkie-talkies he could find. And he went to her house, and he gave her a walkie-talkie, and he turned it on, and he turned his on. And he said, anytime you're scared or lonely, I will have my walkie-talkie on, and you can talk to me, and it'll help. And they did, almost every evening. Are you there? I'm here. How you feeling? What's going on? And they would have conversations, and because of that, she wouldn't feel lonely or scared. As she got sicker and sicker, she had to go to the hospital, and she realized he probably was never going to leave the hospital. And he would come and visit her every day. And when it got to the point where he wasn't allowed to go in a room anymore, he would drive to the hospital, and he would sit in the parking lot, turn the walkie-talkie on, and he would talk to her in her room in the hospital. The night she died, they had a conversation, and she wasn't alone. And she wasn't scared. How do you place worth on people? And how does that affect the way you love them? I can tell you for sure that extravagant love is never wasted. One of my ministry heroes in life, I met him one time back in the 80s. His name is Juan Carlos Ortiz, and he's an Argentinian pastor. And at that time, he pastored a very large congregation of thousands of people. And he gave the best sermon that I've ever heard. He got up in front of his congregation one Sunday morning, and he got up and he opened his Bible, and he said three words. Love one another. And then he closed his Bible, and he sat down. And he didn't get back up. 20, 30 minutes went by. Nobody said a word. They're all looking around. Is that it? What are we supposed to do? The next week comes time for the sermon and the service. He stands up, and he says, love one another, and he sat down again. By this time, the church staff is starting to wonder what's going on. Is he okay? Has he lost his mind or whatever? The third week, he does the exact same thing, love one another. And then he waited. And one by one, people in his congregation started standing up, going and finding people that they'd had quarrels with, finding people that were hurting and praying with them, finding people that were in need and trying to figure out how they could meet those needs. It took three weeks of sitting in silence for people to start doing what Jesus said. I hope that we as a community can love one another well. Amen.